Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome everyone to episode 55 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How's things? Yeah, good. I um, just wanted to give a shout out to everyone who tried my roast cabbage recipe in the last couple of weeks. We've had some people posting photos of it and I'm just loving it. Yeah, I saw there was a bit of a response to that, which was, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was nice. Unusual uh, thing to be discussed on a, I think, a true crime <laughs> forum, but uh, yeah, it was good. Good to see. Yeah. Uh, we've got some Patreon shout-outs this week, Chloe. We do. Thank you so much and welcome to Samuel Graham, Leela Dutovsky and Nell McKellar. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. The case we are discussing today contains graphic descriptions of crime against young children and some of the content is difficult to hear, so we'd encourage our listeners to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. Today we're talking about Mr Cruel, the child abductor, sexual predator and presumed murderer active in suburban Melbourne during the late 80s to early 90s. This episode is part two, so if you haven't listened to part one, this will make little to no sense. So hit pause, go back and listen to part one. Last week, we discussed some of Mr. Krull's earlier offending, the four known crimes attributed to him, the home invasion and sexual assault of unidentified Jill, the abduction and sexual assaults of Sharon Wills and Nicola Linus, and finally, the abduction and murder of Carmen Chan. We're not going to recap all of that. We're going to resume this tale discussing the first police task force looking into Mr. Krull's crime spree. That was Operation Spectrum. But before we get to that, we should note that this, unlike last week's retelling of the facts, will be mostly a speculative episode. We're putting all of the information out there for people to dissect and weigh up of their own accord. We'll save our opinions till the end. But we're going to begin with something a bit different. This is the story of a guy who was walking around the streets of Reservoir, right near Thomastown, on the night of Carmen's abduction. I don't know this guy's name, but he's posted a six and a half minute YouTube video with some maps for visuals telling his own story, what he saw and heard. And it's very interesting, and I think it sets the tone for this episode. We won't play the whole thing, just the meat of it. Let's have a listen. Around the time of her disappearance, 
I lived in Coburg and I didn't have a car. The nearest shop to my house opened at about eight o'clock in the morning and I had no milk. And with a child under about one year of age, um, I had to have milk first thing in the morning, sometimes 6.30, 7, 7 o'clock. I had to have milk there, otherwise this kid's just going to scream. So I decided to take a walk from Elizabeth Street, Coburg, where I was living at the time. And I was going to Hendy Street and Gilbert Road. This was my destination for one of the 7-Elevens that I lived near. I lived in between two, both were at the same distance. I just happened to go this way on that night. Um, this was the night of the Carmen Chan disappearance. This was the night she was taken. I made out about 11 o'clock at night. Don't know the exact time, but I know it was around 11 because I thought I can get to this store and back to my home within about an hour and I can be in bed by maybe just after 12. It's about a 20 minute walk. But, you know, screwing around at the store and whatnot. I didn't know what time I'd get back. On my way to the store, I cut through a creek area. After walk up a big hill to get to the shop, sort of just putting it off to the end of the journey. So I was looking towards the creek as I, uh, <clears throat> as I took my route along Elizabeth Street, up to Jenkins, down, uh, I don't know the name of that road there, but anyway, heading towards Henry Street and Gilbert Road. Walking along the creek, I hear a crack. It's a gunshot. <clears throat> I didn't hear any gunshots before this, I didn't hear any gunshots after this. And apparently Carmen Chan had three bullets put in the back of her head. So whether, but when I looked up, I see a ute. I, uh, relative to that era um, I seen a man standing there looking like he was wearing possibly overalls and then like a spray jacket on the top and he had his back turned to me with the gun raised up in the air it was almost like he seen me coming set the gun off to let me know he was there and well, it was enough to frighten the shit out of me. And I took off up what I think is called Kingsley Road, which goes up to Gilbert Road. And then I walked along to Henny Street where the 7-Eleven was. Didn't think much of this until the next day when Carmen Chan was all over the news. And it uh, came to me came to me that I may have seen her killer or her abductor abductor and killer I should say um, anyway went out of my mind again until a year or two later when Carmen Chan's body turns up in Thomastown behind an electric plant by this time I'd moved from Elizabeth Street and now I'm just going to flick through the blocks that I moved. Let's use Parade. It's High Street. 
ended up living on High Street, not far from Arnie's Road in Thomastown. And that's where her body was found, Thomastown Terminal Station. Make sure it's in the screen there. Um, the cops set up a caravan and I went and told them what I'd seen on that night. It's just strange though, I mean, like these two places I'm showing you, they're only about no shit. You could drive there in under 10 minutes from where I seen the shooting that night to where the body was found. Under 10 minutes. Yeah. Just my little story about Mr. Cruel, what I've seen. As you pointed out towards the end of last week's episode, Chloe, there was some division or differing opinions within Victoria Police. Some investigating detectives thought that the drug angle pertaining to John Chan had not been looked into hard enough. Others maintained that he was squeaky clean and this crime was indeed Mr Cruel. One thing we know is that Commander David Sprague was not impressed with how the crime scene at the Chan residence had been preserved by the time he got there. Sprague commented, We had a lot of problems with it. Unfortunately, the initial police member in charge had set up the command post inside the house. It was a disaster, with people stomping all over the place. They didn't seal the crime scene off as they should have. Several crews of investigators were dispatched around the state and the world to make exhaustive inquiries into Carmen's murder and the broader probe into identifying Mr Cruel. Briefs and investigators flying everywhere on this. The drug angle was certainly worked, as hard as the police could, but ultimately it wasn't pursued because nothing came of it. 11,000 physical information sheets were reviewed by police 30,000 houses visited, letters sent all across Victoria to doctors. Vic Pohl even spoke with a convicted child kidnapper and murderer from South Carolina in the USA. This guy's name was Richard Sterrett, in the hopes of gaining some insights into Mr Cruel's offending. Sterrett had kidnapped several young girls before shooting and killing one of them. Operation Spectrum was concluded in January 1994, And while they didn't catch Mr. Cruel, they did uncover an extremely seedy underbelly of sexual deviancy and charged 74 people with offences, ranging from rape, incest and blackmail to attempted bestiality, possession of child pornography, threats to kill, obscene phone calls and firearm offences. The Victorian government were forced to make sweeping legislative changes off the back of the task force's work, which exposed big holes in the system and its inability to protect the vulnerable, particularly children. Loitering, stalking and possession of child pornography were all areas to have legislation and penalties significantly tightened. Possessing child pornography was still not illegal, believe it or not, Chloe, back at this time in 1994. Crazy to think. Police detectives had eliminated 27,000 suspects from the Mr. Cruel investigation, travelled just shy of 1 million kilometres around the country pursuing him, and worked over 25,000 hours of unpaid overtime. But the bogeyman remained elusive. The FBI were consulted to provide a criminal profile of the offender, and as we covered in the last episode, their take on him was much more along the lines of him being the opposite to Cruel. 
He was more than likely an average citizen, your next-door neighbour type of thing, not the prototypical view of a child sex offender hanging around parks with an overcoat, real creamed hair and a pair of horn-rimmed spectacles. Quoting directly from part of the profile here, in view of the fact that these incidents all occur during school holidays, we suggest there is a high degree of probability that the offender is involved with a school. He may be employed there or connected with a school in some other capacity. The offender has an intense interest in children, especially children in the age group he is assaulting. He will spend a great deal of time with these children in what appears to be selfless dedication to students. This apparent dedication may well have earned him recognition and awards, teacher of the year, coach of the year, exceptional volunteer, etc. Is a functional individual, one with steady employment, is generally regarded as a good neighbour, polite, quiet, somewhat introverted, but may be involved in certain community-minded projects. Further to this, the FBI suggested throughout their profile that he might live close by to where the first assault occurred and that he'd have a collection of pornography, both homemade and commercial, that he'd live in a single family residence and he might be in a relationship. If he was, his partner would have some indication of his sexual proclivities, which might include schoolgirl roleplay, for example. It further noted that work colleagues would see changes in his behaviour and attitude post-attacks and that he had no desire to hurt these kids. The attacks were centred on sexual gratification. Physically, the FBI provided a pretty broad description. He could have been in his 20s, 30s or 40s, 165 to 183 centimetres tall, which is 5'5 to 6 foot in the old scale, with sandy or ginger-coloured hair. More specifically, they noted a thin to medium build with a small pot belly, neutral Australian accent, softly spoken and gentle in his own twisted way. So we have a pretty good idea of what this guy looked like in the basic sense. It's fairly broad, but it gave a general box of exclusion for police. We have a good idea of what maybe motivated this guy too, but the problem was these were all just that, ideas, theories. Nothing was concrete. Just when something lined up and provided consistency or a potential pattern, something else would steer investigators away from that. As we said, there was no uniform opinion on who this guy was, no single prime suspect at this stage. That would eventually change. In 2010, a second task force named Apollo would begin reinvestigating the Mr. Cruel attacks of the late 80s, early 90s. But their hopes of cracking this wide open would be quickly dashed when they discovered that the original investigation files were unorganised, to put it nicely. A lot of the documentation had been mishandled, misfiled, and it was said that a lot of the evidence from 1985, 86 and 87 had been completely lost. This included some rope or tape which could have contained Mr Krull's DNA. This had been lost alongside a swab taken from one of the potential earlier survivors of a 1985 attack. She believed the offender had ejaculated inside her, meaning that the swab could have contained his DNA. This piece of vital evidence had been lost too. But this, of course, wasn't highly publicised at the time. From the public standpoint, nothing of great significance had been heard on Mr Krull for a number of years by this point. I wouldn't say it had become a cold case, but there certainly hadn't been any major developments in the late 90s and early 2000s. All we had at this point was theories and questions. Stephen Barron, a police officer and psychologist of 25 years, believed Mr Krull was a burglar or armed robber who had become opportunistic. 
He noted the way Mr. Krull planned his attacks, selected houses, families, excluded places with dogs, the raiding of houses, etc. He suggested this was a burglar escalating, specialising, if you will, rather than an exclusive sex offender. Barron said that Mr. Krull was ego-driven. He relished control, took his time, was methodical and meticulous, and he doubted he would have stopped offending. Barron also made the comment that he believed the attack on Carmen Chan was a message, that there was a link between the offender and Carmen's father. Cal Glare, former police inspector back at the time of the attacks, he too seemed unsure of John Chan when speaking about him in the following clip. I knew Phyllis Chan before the abduction and her afterwards. I live in Eltham and um, dined at her restaurant a number of times. I don't for one moment think she was involved in any way in, uh, in drugs. What about John Chan, her husband? I don't know so much about John, um, and he took off fairly quickly after the, uh, uh, the killing of uh, Carmen, so I, I really don't know enough about John. And recent comments from former detective Ron Idles add a bit more of a twist to the thought that Carmen's murder might have been linked to the Chan family's restaurants in a much more innocent fashion. Uh, we'll touch on that specifically later in the episode when it comes up in the timeline. Commander David Sprague, who headed up the original task force, he was convinced that Mr Krull was someone who had been on the police radar earlier in his life for committing less serious offences, you know, the flashing or peeping Tom type stuff we mentioned in the last episode. Sprague's view was he'd learned from being caught in the past, hence why he was going to great lengths to conceal his identity in these more recent and serious offences. Sprague also noted that he didn't think Mr. Krull wanted to kill Carmen Chan, but that something happened which made him feel like he had to. Perhaps she'd seen his face, pulled his mask down, something like that, and to protect his identity, as per that earlier quote attributed to him about his freedom and liberty, he'd killed her out of what he deemed to be necessity. Tim Watson Munro, the criminal psychologist we mentioned in part one, said Mr. Krull was a textbook psychopath with sexual perversions that escalated. He predicted he would kill and he eventually did. Watson Munro says his suspicion is that Mr. Krull either ended up in jail or died. Watson Munro also rebuffed the assertion that this offender wouldn't be able to stop of his own accord, referencing Kenneth Bianchi, one of the hillside stranglers, who had stopped offending as abruptly as he'd started before relocating and resuming his offending. Still, experts and police alike couldn't seem to agree on this aspect. They were simply theories. And speaking of theories, let's take a dive into some of the details and common threads we saw come out of the cases in last week's episode, alongside some obvious questions I think all of us would have. One of the first things jumping out was that all of the attacks we covered occurred during the school holidays. This obviously leads to many questions and speculation around if the offender had something to do with schools. Did he work in schools and was this the only time he could carry out these attacks? Nicole and Carmen both attended the same school too, so was there a connection with the Presbyterian Ladies College? Occupational speculation around this? Was he a teacher, a school administrator, maybe even a maintenance worker or a cleaner at this or another school? Or was he on the school periphery, a contractor who perhaps visited schools on occasion, a youth worker maybe? Another connection was the medical aspect. Elastoplast was mentioned a couple of times in the attacks, as was him wanting a first aid kit. Did this lend to the theory that he worked in the medical sector, healthcare sector or maybe the defence force? 
The red herrings make it all the more difficult to sift through. Fake conversations during the attacks, both on the phone and with pretend co-attackers, and the spray-painted message on the Chan's car. Was that a red herring or was it not? Was Carmen's murder even linked and part of the Mr. Cruel attacks? The popular theory is that Carmen, being the feisty young girl she was, wouldn't have gone willingly. She'd said as much to her family in the past after hearing of the first couple of Mr. Cruel attacks. Perhaps Carmen had got a look at him, might have caught him without his mask on or maybe managed to pull the balaclava off at some stage. Maybe that caused him to kill her or perhaps she recognised him as someone from within their life in connection with their school, maybe tennis, maybe the restaurants. He used typical Aussie slang in parts of his attacks too, words like bozo, worrywart and missy. Nothing that suggested he was from a particular class within society or was that the plan to make himself sound generic? And we know he went to great lengths to protecting his identity in the literal sense, not letting his victims see his face, but also removing forensic evidence. He'd make the girls bathe, wipe down sinks and bench tops to remove fingerprints, cleaned floors, even lying sheets down to walk across in some instances. But how much of this was forensic skill on his part? This was still the late 80s, early 90s. Police forensics weren't anything close to what they are today. As we heard before, quite a lot of the evidence had been lost. Considering that kind of care, were the crime scene examinations as meticulous as we'd think? Looking at that with a modern day perspective, it's easy to hear about him removing any trace of himself and not leaving DNA behind and jumping to the conclusion that he worked in law enforcement or the medical field perhaps. Was it possible this guy was simply a clean freak and the police forensics not as advanced as we commonly think? You have to think, with the first cases being solved with DNA in the mid-80s, it's not exactly like a switch was flicked on and now every single piece of genetic material was being retrieved from a crime scene from, say, 1987 onwards. It takes time for gradual uptake in both acquiring the knowledge and training staff, particularly in real time. No internet back then for us to browse, you know, a feed and read about the case that's been cracked with genetic genealogy either. There's no doubt he went to great lengths, having the victims clip their nails, brush and floss, wash hands and change clothes. But how much do we attribute to intellect on his part and a new evolving science in its infancy still being learnt by Australian law enforcement at this time? Another commonality we mentioned in part one was the electrical connection. Both Nicola and Carmen were left near electrical substations. He'd used electrical tape in the attacks too, which is a commonly used household item really. I recall myself having rolls of the red, blue and green tape in the 90s. But was this another angle? Did he have some sort of electrical communication or data-based background? A very popular theory that has seemingly become more popular since the arrest of the Golden State killer, Joseph D'Angelo, is that Mr Cruel had a background in law enforcement. D'Angelo had a naval background and worked in law enforcement himself. We heard mentioned with some of Mr Cruel's knots that these were commonly used by truck drivers, sailors, fishermen, etc. Was he a police officer too? It was also odd that the attack on Carmen Chan had occurred the day after Operation Challenge, which was investigating Nicola Linus's kidnapping. It had been wound down that very day and then Carmen's attack occurred. So did Mr. Krull know this? Was this inside knowledge? 
Another interesting tidbit on the theory that he worked in law enforcement came along eight months after Carmen's abduction. Police members were having a rare social evening with their partners, and on that night when they were all out, a man tried to abduct a girl from her home in St Albans. This was December 1991. He failed and we don't have details of the attack, but police haven't ruled out Mr Cruel as a suspect. And it was another little oddity that this occurred when the police team members were all indisposed that night. St Albans was certainly an area in this flight path, but there were many others. As we said last week, this was a huge area. Coburg, Strathmore, Keylor, Plenty, McLeod, Watsonia, Nidri, Airport West, Essendon, you could go on and on. But why had this reign of terror stopped? Had he got so scared after murdering Carmen, he felt like the police were on to him and he had to stop to not get caught? Had he simply relocated or changed his MO? Victoria Police had a system called LEAP at this time, still do as we understand. Back at this time, though, the system didn't communicate with other state police databases. Does it now? We're not sure. But it was plausible he'd fled interstate. Had he even fled overseas? Or had he died, taken his own life perhaps, been jailed or undergone therapy or been prescribed medication that purposefully or inadvertently changed his behaviours? These are just some of the broader questions people have asked and some of the theories they've discussed over the years. At the end of it all, we're still not sure where the truth is amongst all of the speculation and conjecture. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. As we reach 2011 in the timeline of this tale, there was a very well publicized disappearance and presumed abduction of a schoolgirl named Bung Siraboon. This was on June the 2nd in 2011. Bung was presumed to have been taken from the street as she walked from her home in Elsie Street, Baronia, an outer eastern suburb of Melbourne, on her way to school. We covered Bung's case in detail in episode 28 of True Blue, so if you haven't listened to that, go back and check it out. Mr Cruel was theorised to have been a potential perpetrator in this case. However, police haven't officially linked him and indicated that it's unlikely he was the offender. What's interesting about that is that there's a suspect in Bung's case who, when you run through the details, he sounds like a good suspect in her case. And he's also a suspect in the Mr. Cruel case. 
So while there's a huge gap in time here, some 18 years between Carmen Chan's murder and Bung's disappearance, it mightn't be probable, but it's certainly possible. We'll discuss this guy more later in the episode when we get to suspects. Before that, though, I wanted to point out another much lesser known case from the same area some 10 years earlier. In the timeline, this really falls between Carmen and Bung's cases, occurring on the 12th of December 2000. And that's the disappearance of 15-year-old Cherie Westall. Cherie had just attended a dental appointment and walked to a nearby phone booth, if you recall those, Chloe, to call back to her house. Cherie was never heard from or seen again after this, and it's presumed that she was abducted from the street. This occurred in Wonturner South, which is right next door to Baronia. Cherie was described as a feisty but typical teenager. She enjoyed horses, sport, art and music. Jewel was actually her favourite artist back at this time. Cherie was in state care at this time. She had a foster mother and her case seems to have been complicated by this fact and the fact that her foster mother couldn't report her missing. This had to be done by a family member, her nearest happening to be her brother, who was named Pierre, who was actually attending schoolies week on the Gold Coast at this time. There's not really much out there about Cherie's case that I could see and it's one of those strange cases where you find yourself scratching your head asking, how come Bung Siraboon's disappearance got the attention it did and Cherie Westall's didn't? There's some obvious factors here you could spend time discussing and analysing, but we wanted to point out this case as it involves a young woman in the ballpark in terms of age and location going missing from the street. If Mr Krull had remained active... Had he simply decreased the frequency of his attacks and changed his MO to become more a snatcher than a home intruder? In April of 2016, Victoria Police announced a $1 million reward for information leading to the apprehension of the person responsible for murdering Carmen Chan. This was 25 years since her tragic death. Police believed that Mr Krull was still alive at this point. Next Wednesday is the 25th anniversary of the abduction and murder of Carmen Chan and we understand Victoria Police intends to mark the occasion by increasing the reward for information that's on offer to $1 million. It's fair to say that in recent times that there'd be few cases that have captured the attention of the public and the police like Carmen's. It's believed she was snatched from her Temple Stowe home one evening by notorious child stealer Mr Cruel and while he had released his previous victims, for some reason he murdered Carmen and her body wasn't found until a year later. Police devoted unprecedented resources to the hunt for Mr Krull, but they searched 30,000 homes and yet he has never been caught. The reward is currently $100,000 relating to Carmen's murder and it's hoped that by increasing it to a million dollars it will encourage someone who's kept a secret all these years to finally come forward. And we believe police are also considering increasing the rewards for Mr. Krull's other victims, Nicola Linus and Sharon Wills, to a million, bringing the total to $3 million. Now, Carmen's family has been consulted about this breakthrough, and no doubt they would welcome an end to this long-running mystery. At this time, police also released the Sierra Files to the Herald Sun newspaper. The Sierra Files were basically a dossier of seven suspects police had on the radar for Mr Krull since 1994. 
The Herald Sun tried to contact all of these individuals to have a chat. Their names haven't been made public except uh, for that of suspect number one, uh, who's said to be the prime suspect. We'll get to him in a few minutes. We're going to run through the other six on the list now, as published by the Herald Sun, starting with dossier suspect number two. Now aged 66, lived in Eltham at the time of the Mr Cruel attacks, The father of his former girlfriend still lives at the suspect's Eltham address and recently told the Herald Sun he hadn't seen or heard of him for more than 20 years. The Herald Sun has discovered that after moving from Eltham, he lived in several homes in the Box Hill and Surrey Hills areas. He ran a number of businesses in Baldwin and Mont Albert North before moving to live in a caravan park in Lake Cathy, New South Wales, after marrying a Canadian woman. He left the caravan park in June 2014 and moved to Canada to live with his wife. One of his brothers last week told the Herald Sun he had lost touch with his sibling but would try to contact him to tell him that the Herald Sun wanted to talk to him. The Herald Sun also emailed the suspect. He didn't respond. Dossier Suspect 3, now aged 68, lived in Musk near Dalesford at the time of the Mr Cruel attacks and still does. Keen to not be tracked down, he changed his name by deed poll in 1988 and has since changed it again. Spoke briefly and angrily to the Herald Sun last week before ordering the journalist to leave his property. Dossier suspect number four, now aged 57, lived in Harcourt at the time of the Mr Cruel attacks and while he still has the house, his neighbours last week told the Herald Sun He spends most of his time in Melbourne and only occasionally returns to his Harcourt address, unable to be contacted. Dossier suspect 5. Died in 2015 at the age of 66. Lived in Knoxfield at the time of the Mr Cruel attacks. Was married with children and grandchildren when he died. Worked as a self-employed tradesman. Dossier suspect number 6. Now age 61. Lived in Baldwin at the time of the Mr Cruel attacks. Moved from his Baldwin address into his mother's Mount Waverley home following her death several years ago and still lives there. His Baldwin home was demolished and replaced with a two-storey mansion after he sold it. Confirmed to the Herald Sun last week that he was aware he was a Mr Cruel suspect but denied any involvement in the Mr Cruel attacks. He told the Herald Sun... I've never had any charges laid against me. I've been interviewed, yes, along with 27,000 other people. I was interviewed. That was it. Dossier suspect seven. Would be 67 if he was still alive. Lived in Glen Iris at the time of the Mr. Cruel attacks. There has been no answer on the many times the Herald Sun has knocked on the door of the Glen Iris address he lived in 25 years ago. Neighbours say they are not aware of him. He isn't on the electoral roll or in the phone book and doesn't use social media, unable to be contacted. So we don't know the names of these six suspects and we have a few more to discuss who we're not sure if they're one of these guys or not or if they're you know, in addition to this list. What we do know is that dossier suspect number one, who Commander David Sprague had as his prime suspect at the time, is a man named Brian Allen Elkner. The number one suspect in the aforementioned Sierra Files dossier, Brian Elkner, 
was a 75-year-old man when all this came out in 2016. Alkner was a retired university lecturer. He'd lectured on French literature at Melbourne University. But back in the early 70s, between 72 and 74, Alkner was doing much more and much worse than discussing Les Miserables. He was tying up and sexually assaulting women, six in fact, one who was a student of his. Alkner did his time and seemingly started his life again with a clean slate in the 80s upon his release from prison. He went on to start his own construction design business and later worked as a senior coordinator for the TAFE Off-Campus Coordinating Authority. There's a few things about Alkner that make him an intriguing suspect in the Mr Cruel case. Firstly, his home was located in Thornbury, just north of Melbourne, and really in the diamond-shaped diameter of where the Mr Cruel attacks occurred. His house was actually raided by police after Carmen's abduction, which I assume to be based on the fact that he was a convicted sex offender. When police raided his house, they found a balaclava and a knife in his attic. There's been a lot of emphasis placed on an essay Alkner wrote back in 1973 too, the bones of which he presented in 1970 at the David Nichol Smith Memorial Seminar in Canberra. Alkner's essay, which was published in the academic book French Aesthetic Thought and the 18th Century, was entitled Diderot and the Sublime, The Artist as a Hero. In this essay, Alkner wrote, If society establishes a new level above the immoral and determined world of nature, the sublime individual, artist or criminal, stands above both, affirming his value in the face of an indifferent nature, a mediocre society. This has been interpreted as Alkner making a case for the sublime criminal, and I suppose when coupled with his offending, which occurred during the time he wrote this, it's not a huge leap to infer this. A current affair confronted Alkner in their usual dramatic style once his identity was made public. Alkner was quite affronted by the confrontation, declaring his innocence, but acknowledging that he was aware that he was the number one suspect. He was quite combative with the reporter, stating that what they were doing was equally as disgusting as what he perpetrated back in the early 70s, because he'd done his time and was completely innocent. I found another interesting piece of information about Brian Alkner that was posted on Reddit by username MJR underscore Sherlock underscore Holmes, and they said, Just stumbled across a piece of prose written by Brian Alkner from behind bars published in the Victorian Marathon Club newsletter in 1978. Alkner writes about his experience being allowed out on day release to participate in a marathon at Princess Park. He also refers to his time running around the exercise yard in Pentridge, where Alkner was serving 10 years for rape, though it seems he served just half that. Alkner even gets a special mention in the newsletter for such a notable achievement. Elkner continued running after being released from prison and his name appears in the Collingwood Athletics Club archives throughout the late 80s for running 10km and 20km courses around Melbourne, including Latrobe Uni, Edgars Creek and Burnley. I found that interesting, that comment, as uh, Dr Xanthi Mallet theorised in her book that we mentioned last episode that the offender in Carmen's case may well have been familiar with the site where he dumped uh, her body, which was Edgar's Creek. Another bit of info worth mentioning pertaining to Brian Alkner is his daughter's name was reported to be Kate. If we recall back to the first Mr Cruel attack on Jill, he insisted on calling her Kate throughout the ordeal, despite her providing her real name when questioned. 
But despite all of this, there's been no physical evidence to connect Brian Elkner to the Mr. Cool cases, none that we're aware of publicly anyway. He's maintained his innocence the entire time, so all we can say is that the police, at least some police, consider him to be the prime suspect. The next suspect we're going to discuss is a man named Robert Keith Knight. To reiterate, we're not sure if Knight is or is not one of the unnamed suspects within the Sierra Files. Let's talk about Knight's criminal history to begin with, then circle the wagon back around to his personal history to show these circles that this predator moved in. It was reported that Knight's offending began back in the early 70s. What we know for sure is that in 1980, he plucked a young girl off the street in the southern beachside suburb of Sorrento. He put a bag over her head and dragged her into his car. From here, Knight took the young girl to a secluded spot where he took explicit photos of her before dropping her back near her home. He gave her $2 and told her not to look back. Another crime reported on which Knight carried out was the kidnapping of a 12-year-old girl at Knife Point in Blegowrie. This was in 1996. Knight took the young girl to a house and for 18 hours he raped and assaulted her, drugged her and forced her to wear lingerie. Knight also videotaped the attack. When he released the terrified young girl, he dropped her at a high school and like he'd done previously, he gave her $5 and told her not to look back. There were a number of other victims of Knight's too over the decades, but we won't delve into his entire criminal history, just touch on a couple to get the gist of what this guy was capable of. Knight ended up getting done for his crimes and serving time as he should have, but he only served 11 and a half years of his 15-year sentence before he was released back into the public on the 12th of March 2009. At this time, he resided in Ferntree Gully, which is just a stone's throw from neighbouring Baronia. Knight began offending within six days of his release and was eventually arrested and charged in late 2012 for child pornography-related offences. While being held in remand awaiting trial for his crimes, none of which he showed a shred of remorse for, it was reported, Knight took his own life by jumping from the upper tier of his prison unit on the 23rd of April 2013. So he's dead. We know what he's capable of and there's a few things lining up which make him a decent suspect on paper for being Mr Cruel. Now let's check out his CV and some of the areas he worked in. Suffice to say, Knight was heavily involved in youth work from a young age upon leaving Glen Waverley High School in 1968. He trained a youth football team in Mount Waverley, joined the YMCA as a teenager and helped start a youth club in Mulgrave. By 1972, he was on the Zodiac Youth Committee, which helped organise live dances for youngsters throughout the Waverley Council area. From 77 to 79, Knight obtained a diploma in youth work and while scouting for jobs, volunteered with a local youth group. This was in Chadston. By 1980, Knight had got the job he was looking for, a community education officer at four different schools. His main location was Meadow Fair North Primary School, but he also attended Bethel, Dallas and Dallas North Primaries. These are all north of Melbourne in the Broad Meadows region. At this job, he ran after school and holiday programs. Then he ended up back in Waverley by 1983, working with youth once again and managing the Sindel Youth Centre. He also ran a number of dances for youth again during this time. 
Knight was also active in the Scouts organisation from 84 until his arrest in 96, and he specialised in first aid within the Scouts. He actually established his own first aid teaching business too, becoming an instructor for the Red Cross in the early 90s. When he was arrested, Knight was working at the Heinz Food Factory in Dandenong, and he was also teaching first aid at Camberwell Grammar School. So make of that what you will. Knight certainly has been suggested as a strong suspect in the case of Bung Siraboon, with his proximity to Baronia at the time and only being released for a year or two before that happened. He's seemingly a less popular suspect in the Mr Cool case, but we're not sure why. Perhaps there's information police have that excludes him in some way or details of his crimes that don't align with the Mr Cruel MO that we're simply not aware of. On paper, he is certainly a compelling suspect. Another guy who I wanted to mention is one who I don't recall having been discussed in connection with the Mr Cruel case. But that's a guy named Robert Arthur Selby Lowe. Again, police may have more information that we're not privy to, which excludes him. But from what has been made public, he's certainly worth throwing in the mix as a person of interest. Lowe was convicted of the murder of six-year-old Cherie Beasley in June 1991. She'd been kidnapped, raped and murdered, her body found in September that year in a stormwater drain. While on a surface level there's some notable differences here compared with Mr Cruel, let's talk about Lowe for a few minutes just to explore the possibility a bit further. Lowe was originally from England where he'd engaged in some criminal activity already by the age of 19. He'd stolen a car and tried to run over a police officer. By his early 20s, he'd moved to New Zealand and spent the next five years accruing more criminal offences, indecent assault, theft, willful and obscene exposure, and for most of which he'd received fines, but he did end up doing a short prison stint. Lowe moved from New Zealand to Australia in the 60s, where he'd gone on to marry a woman named Lorraine. Lowe was a well-spoken and respected salesman. He was active in the church, a local cricket coach and a Sunday school teacher. But his other life rolled along in the shadows while in Australia. Over a dozen times, he got done for indecent behaviour, willful and obscene exposure, theft and loitering for sexual purposes. Interestingly, during court proceedings for Cherie Beasley's murder, Lowe's wife Lorraine testified that her husband had quite the passion for following the details of Carmen Chan's murder. He apparently prayed for her both at church and at home too. So yes, you know, we've got some obvious differences here, mainly with the way Cherie was abducted and murdered and her age being quite a bit younger than Cruel's victims and with Lowe possibly having somewhat of an accent. However, as was said by Tim Watson Munro, Mr Cruel was possibly not limited to just girls between those ages. He was intelligent, as was Lowe, and his MO could have changed over time. With Lowe, we have a guy who's been convicted of a murder of a young girl just a couple of months after Carmen's abduction, ticking many of those FBI profile boxes about his professional involvement with children, being a family man, and he was certainly residing in the general area, being the east, southeast side of Melbourne at the time. Combine that with his interest in Carmen's case, and I think he's definitely worth consideration. Another guy I wanted to mention who fits into this same category as Robert Lowe is a man named Gregory Keith Davies. Listeners may recall his name as being the perpetrator in the murder of six-year-old Kylie Maybury in the inner eastern suburb of Preston. This occurred back on Melbourne Cup Day, the 6th of November 1984. 
Robert Lowe was actually originally considered a suspect in this crime too. We covered this case back in episode 24 of True Blue. Gregory Keith Davies wasn't arrested and charged with this crime until 30 years later in June 2016. New evidence came to light which implicated him in the kidnapping, rape and murder of young Kylie and he was subsequently charged, tried and sentenced to life imprisonment. What's interesting about Davies when you look at his past and timeline is that he was charged for attempted murder and wounding with intent back in 1971. He attacked a 14-year-old girl brutally on the Greensboro train line, but he was acquitted on the grounds of insanity and detained at the governor's pleasure. By 1982, however, he had been released after 10 years inside, having undergone no psychiatric treatment. So we know he was out and about in the area from 1982 onwards. He'd not pop up on police radar again until 1993, when he was convicted of a number of burglary, theft and dishonesty charges, and again in 1996 for indecent assault and gross indecency charges. So again, in terms of his potential as a person of interest in the Mr Cruel case, he suffers some of the same shortcomings as Robert Lowe, but... He was in the area at the time, he's got the history to coincide with these types of crimes, and it later came out after Kylie's trial that several children had come forward with accusations of Davies having sexually assaulted them. He didn't strike me as the brightest of individuals, but then again, that could have all been part of the ruse. You know, these guys often appear a certain way, but can be almost savant-like when it comes to perpetrating their chosen crimes. So, you know, he too, I think, is definitely worth throwing in the mix. But again, he may have been excluded by police for reasons which we just don't know. And finally, we're going to talk about a man named John. This is reading directly from an Age newspaper article by Nino Bucci, as it was the only source we saw about this. It reads, Several new suspects that were nominated to police after the Spectrum Task Force disbanded, including John, whose partner spoke to police in outer suburban Melbourne in 2011, were also investigated by Apollo detectives. So I'm guessing John's uh, one of these dossier suspects. The statements made by John's former partner paint him as a sadistic predator who abused her for decades. He spoke about Carmen during sex, was often nervous when stories about her featured on television news and appeared upset when her killer was dubbed Mr Cruel, but he never explicitly said he was involved in the case. The former partner said John also regularly commented about another cold case, which remains unsolved after more than a decade, implying that he knew the culprit or helped bury the body in regional Victoria. The case cannot be named, as to do so may identify the suspect. As he was self-employed and travelled regularly across Melbourne for work, John could justify disappearing for hours at a time on a job, which could provide cover for his offending, she said. But while police considered the claim serious enough to take several statements from the woman, some of her information appeared contradictory, fanciful or impossible to confirm. A victim of Mr Cruel said aeroplane noise was incredibly loud at the property where she was abused. While the Mooney Ponds property that Johns had access to was near a flight path, it did not match the layout reported by the victim. The statement also included a claim about a human leg being uncovered in a suburban backyard, which John became frantic about before explaining that it was a dead dog. It referred to John abusing the woman when she was a teenager and being known as a man who had used drugs to assault other women and girls, 
but no reports were made to police at the time of the assaults. John was alleged to have access to a gun and have several boxes of slides that contain images of home pornography. The gun did not match the description of that used in either Carmen's murder or the other abductions, and the slides were supposedly destroyed. So that's that when it comes to John. One of the last things we have to touch on, Chloe, is the links that have been made with Mr. Cruel and the Golden State Killer. The possibility that these guys are one and the same has been dismissed by authorities, I believe largely based on the fact that Joseph D'Angelo's timeline has been filled in a bit now, and they were able to confirm employment uh, of his in the US from around 1989, I believe. But still, the similarities in their MOs are incredible. There's some obvious differences in victim type, but if for some reason Carmen Chan's murder isn't connected to the entire series, you know, is it possible that the Golden State Killer and Mr. Cruel are one and the same? Again, there's probably a whole lot more info police have to determine this, and you know, we can't get our hands on that, but let's touch on some of the similarities that have been drawn in the press. We're not going to spend a lot of time discussing the Golden State Killer, so look that up if you're unfamiliar with the details. In a nutshell, he was a burglar, rapist, serial killer who was apprehended via genetic genealogy and familial DNA investigations in 2018. His series of crimes were originally treated as three separate perpetrators, but were later all linked via DNA and MO. D'Angelo certainly fits the bill in terms of having visited Australia while he was in the Navy, we know that. Also the timeline, his spate of burglaries, rapes and murders went from the 70s through to the early 80s in California. The 12 murders he committed took place between 1979 and 1981, with a five-year gap between his final murder of Janelle Cruz in 1986. The Mr. Cruel attacks that have been confirmed began after this in 1987, with there being speculation they started earlier in 1985, so again, police might have more info to eliminate this possibility. But the known attacks began after this. Let's take a look at some of the similarities in the attack MOs of GSK and Mr. Cruel. Attack times, always in the late night or early morning. He carried a knife and a gun wore a balaclava or ski mask, and phone lines were cut or attempted to be cut in both cases. Similar size descriptions too, 5 foot 8 or 175 centimetres tall, slim build, although Cruel did apparently have a pot belly, used the ruse that he was after money, food or household goods before moving on to sexual assault. He bound victims and people in the house with this particular diamond knot, took breaks, made and consumed meals in the house during the attacks, blindfolded and gagged victims and used red herrings such as pretending other people were in the house or on the phone. We know the Golden State Killer shot people in the execution style in which Carmen was murdered. He took things from the houses such as personal mementos. Both offenders conducted meticulous surveillance, stalking and prowling of the neighbourhoods prior to the offences. And as we know... Joseph D'Angelo was a former police officer, something many people theorise might be the case with Mr Cruel too. So as we said, these two offenders have a number of similarities in the way the crimes were perpetrated. There's some notable differences too. Obviously the pot belly aspect, which could be open to interpretation a bit. The accent is a big one. GSK also primarily targeted grown women, not teenage girls. However, from memory, there was an earlier attack of his in the East Area Rapist series 
where I think one of the victims was quite young, perhaps around the age of 13. And when he was committing this series of crimes originally attributed to the Visalia ransacker, D'Angelo shot and killed Claude Snelling while trying to abduct his teenage daughter. There's an intriguing number of similarities between these two perps and the naval connection, knowing D'Angelo visited Australia makes it all the more compelling. But authorities have been fairly clear on their belief that these two offenders are separate individuals and making the educated guess they have a whole lot more to go on than we do. We'll just have to take their word on that one. Finally, the last thing we wanted to discuss, which we mentioned briefly earlier in the episode, was some information our very own Ron Idle said in May of this year. I believe this was during one of Australian True Crime's live streams they do for their Patreon supporters, which I'm one of. Ron said that police had been provided info from a well-known armed robber who was on his deathbed dying from cancer that he knew who Mr Krull was. This man said that Mr Krull was now deceased, but previously lived in Altham, which would be somewhat under the Tullamarine flight path, I guess. It doesn't scream low-flying jets to me, Altham, but it's close. This guy said that Carmen wasn't murdered because she fought him off or ripped his mask off, but because she already knew his identity as he frequented one of the family's restaurants, which uh, we're going to assume was the Chan family's third restaurant we mentioned briefly last week, which we understand was in Altham too. So again, make of that what you will. It's interesting to note that the Sierra Files dossier suspect too had a guy who lived in Altham. So this may or may not be the same guy Ron is alluding to. But that's the latest and everything we have on Mr. Cruel. So what's your final thoughts on this one, Sean? Yeah, so there's a lot of intriguing aspects uh, to this to this case, a lot of intriguing suspects to discuss. Uh, it's almost the fun part when you discuss a case like this, but, you know, then you, you can't forget the pain those girls, uh, you know, went through that we discussed in the first episode, what they had to endure at the hands of this monster, the ongoing grief of the Chan family. So my heart goes out to each and every one of them. My personal opinion is that this guy was someone who worked in the medical or healthcare field, maybe a doctor, paediatrician, nurse, maybe on the periphery of that industry, Uh, but I think uh, he had some connection with schools from there. And that's probably why I find someone like Robert Keith Knight more compelling than than Brian Elkner, uh, the named prime suspect. Uh, But the, the way this guy was, it screams to me that he was overly neat, clean and hygienic, not some sort of advanced forensic specialist. Uh, I'm not casting shade on the police, but you have to think of the times. Like we said a bit in the episode, Chloe, it's not like DNA came about and by 1990, everything was caught in the net. I think it was more of a gradual uh, thing, the uptake on all that. Uh, even looking at, at Golden State Killer, you know, D'Angelo was a police officer and he left DNA all over the place. Um, his crimes were, were a bit earlier. But um, to me, the cleanliness, the elastoplast, the first aid kit he mentioned, the sort of softer, caring nature, soft hands, soft voice, pot belly, you know, someone with a sedentary day job. It sounds like someone with a mind for this whose obsession turned criminal. Maybe it all started with snow dropping, burglary for the thrill, and evolved to kind of satiate his sexual desires. That's obviously just my personal opinion. Yeah, that's based on on the research I've done. And the, but the, the Golden State Killer parallels are are really quite disturbing and interesting to contemplate too. But as we said, we can only assume that's been looked into uh, extremely thoroughly by authorities. There's just so much we don't know. That's the thing with the Mister Cruel case. I feel like if 
we knew a little bit more from those earlier attacks, those ones they, they talk about, those half a dozen or, or dozen that might be connected. You know, if we could see how that was connected, maybe that'd help. One thing I really wanted to mention was that the description of Mr. Krull's room and bathroom, we'll, we'll post pictures of that in our socials this week, but when you look at the pictures of them, police have made public, to me it looks like a hotel or a motel room. The colours, the layout, I know it was the 80s, but that's what it looks like to me. Combine that with the fact he covered that tall boy with a blanket, it's commonly theorised this was to hide something personal of his, I'd put forward it was to hide something that identified the establishment, perhaps. And the radio, it mightn't have drowned out the aeroplanes, but maybe he wanted it to drown out the neighbouring conversations in the adjoining rooms. I find it hard to grasp that someone so meticulous would just bring these girls to his house. It seems more likely to me he'd hire a spot for, I don't know, one day, under 24 hours, like in Sharon's case, and then maybe ramping it up to two days or two nights the next time. Your 48 hours in Nicola's case. Again, just my theory and opinion. Uh, but that's my thoughts on uh, the Mr. Cruel case. So I hope we've done it justice and everyone has got something out of this this two-parter. Yeah, and um, uh, on the two-parter note, we always see that there's an unusual number of people never listen to the second part, which is so unsatisfying to me. So <laughs> hopefully we linked it enough to get people back for this one. I think it's a, it's a thing across the board with two-parters for anyone, but... Um, stick around, guys. Um, I guess, how do I follow that up? You've basically summed up my thoughts on this. Um, the meticulous planning and the calm execution suggest that this was something he planned for for a very long time. That kind of control in a situation like that is absolutely blood-curdling. I've always swung between thinking he is involved in law enforcement or medicine, as you said, because of the level of forensic knowledge as well. I also wonder if he ever went completely dormant. I think if he's alive that killing Carmen maybe scared him and the increasing ease of access to the internet around that time meant that his hunting ground moved from the real world to potentially the dark web. I hope not, but I can't imagine someone like him going from what he was doing to nothing. I just hope he didn't cause much more harm. I also hope, like the Golden State Killer, he gets caught through DNA I don't think it's very popular in Australia, so we probably need to ramp up our ancestry testing. And to finish, I would like to reiterate your point. I hope that the families have been able to move on or find some peace and get some closure. And I'm just so very sorry for everything that happened to them, to their daughters and to their families. Um, so on that note, I didn't sleep after recording this last episode last week. So, and that doesn't happen to me very often. I feel like, you know, when you're reading things and even though you're consuming it, it's kind of analytical. So you don't, well, I don't find I take on the emotional side, but I need a happy thought so I can sleep tonight. (laughs) So what's yours? Mine is, uh, well, as I mentioned last week, I had the week off. I've taken this week off too. Um, but that's just enabled me to spend a, a bit of time with uh, with the family, which has been great. But I've also been able to read uh, a few books, a few fiction books, which I've mentioned, as you know, Chloe, I've mentioned a couple of times I'm, I'm into uh, fiction, crime fiction in particular. Mm. But since starting the podcast, very rarely find the uh, <laughs> the time to- <laughs> Reading for fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's normally the, the true crime books and, uh, and stuff going through uh, for the research. So that's been nice to um, get into a couple of those. What's your happy thought? Um, mine is boxing. So my husband and I have boxing gloves and, you know, pads to spar. And I'm a big believer in doing exercise and moving your body in ways that feel good. And at the moment, 
it's just, it's so good. And I think it's just getting that frustration out and, you know, it's kind of high intensity and I'm doing it maybe once or twice a week. And yeah, we partner up and kind of take turns in being the one boxing. And it's just awesome. Like, it's so good that we can still do something like that from home and yeah, just loving it. Good. No, that sounds very, very positive. Good for the soul. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> um, if you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes. A couple of quick supporter shout-outs to Joey, Anonymous, and Rachel Binney. Thanks for the support, guys. We are taking next week off the main feed, uh, but we'll be back with you all after that. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.